Hello everyone and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. My name is Jacob Coots, I am your host today, and I am joined by my co-host Grant Vavra. Grant, it's been a pretty good week, I'd say. Uh, this is the first week I'm recording a movie podcast in my house so that's that's big news and also yeah, you're big... finally you're finally all moved in this is i i mean this is the fifth podcast that we've released and i think you've recorded all five of them in different locations if i'm remembering that correctly five different locations in three different cities <laughs> and how many states three states as well three states <laughs> well i'm glad you're all settled in hopefully things will get a little bit less crazy for you. Uh, We have a really interesting show today, I think. It's going to be a show in three parts, as usual. Right after this, we're going to have our trailer section where we're going to talk about movies that are going to be coming out in the future that people might be interested in. Following that, we're going to have our industry talk this week about kind of about the TV program at the movies, more about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who are some old film critics. And finally, we're going to have our feature presentation, the movie we watched this week, which was Dora and the Lost City of Gold. So without too much further ado, let's just roll right on into those trailers. Before we get into industry talk and our movie this week, it's time to talk about some trailers in the news, but actually... I just want to say, Grant, this past weekend was a little bit strange. Uh, Why is that? Because it was the rare week out of the year where, rare weekend I should say, where the top two highest grossing movies were not Disney. Yeah, so it's that one singular weekend out of the year where Disney doesn't just rake it in at the box office. (laughs) Yeah, the good guys won this week. Uh, well, actually, The Good Boys, I should say, because that was the highest grossing movie, and in second place was Hobbs and Shaw, both of which are Universal Studios. Interesting. So speaking of Universal Studios, or a subsidiary of it, I wanted to talk about uh, Abominable, which is a DreamWorks movie, the same people that made How I Met Your... How I Met? Uh, how to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> how I Met Your Dragon Mother. Yeah, be a, that's an interesting crossover that I <laughs> don't know if I want to see or not. Uh. Either way, like it's very obvious that you can tell that the same people that worked on How to Train Your Dragon worked on this movie. The art style and direction is um, very much the same. A lot of the themes seem to be the same because when Yi discovers a yeti on her roof in downtown Shanghai, she realizes that she has to help him get back to his family at the highest point on Earth on Mount Everest. And it looks like the story approaches topics like friendship, family, grief, loss, being an outsider. Again, a lot of things that were touched on in the various How to Train Your Dragon movies, which I'm already a fan of, so I'm sort of on board with an art style that's similar and what appears to be something of a similar story. I don't know. I I think that this looks great. I believe that you had um, didn't get a trailer for this, and I had to send it to you. (laughs) Yeah, I... 
I also showed up one preview late, so it's possible I, I that was the first one they showed. But it looked like when it when I saw it, I thought it was in the How to Train Your Dragon universe. I was like, whoa, they made an, another sequel? But it's, yeah, it's just this new film by them, that same studio. And they do have a very unique design. I do like their animation style. Um, you can't teach an old dragon new tricks, so... Might as well keep that creativity going. And I think I'll, I'll like this film. It touches on, again, like you said, good themes, friendship, family, being an outsider. So I'll be excited to watch this when it comes out on September 27th, 2019. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that you're giving out the release date for that. Because our next trailer we're going to talk about, we have a release date for, we think. <laughs> However... We we scoured the internet and we found about four different dates, and it seems like it's different all over the world because I believe it's actually from a French film company, which will make more sense in a second. But it's it's been very hard to nail down exactly when this is coming out. So the date that we're giving you, August 30th of this year, which we will repeat, might not be accurate. <laughs> and it might depend on the country you're into, so be, be kind to us. <laughs> yeah, uh, really, if you're interested in this, which... To be frank, you might not need to be interested in this. Um, check your local listings. That's literally just going to be the best way to find it. So what we're talking about is Playmobil the movie, which seems a lot like the Lego movie, uh, but it's a different brand, and this seems more like a spy movie versus a kind of hero's journey sort of movie that the Lego movie was. That said, it does feel a little bit weird for it to be coming out now. Like, I know having done a little bit of research into this there were a lot of issues during production and i think that might be the reason it's coming it's coming out now versus in the past when i think they wanted it to come out but it still feels i don't want to say cash grabby that's not the right term but it, it just feels weird given the popularity of the lego movies and the timing for this to be coming out it is a feature-length commercial at its heart <laughs> it's uh, it looks like a crossover of the Lego movie and the Kingsman a little bit. Yeah. Very eggsy style character in there. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It just seems... I'm trying not to judge it at face value, especially because it's very clearly designed to be a kid's movie. I don't think that it's going to do the Lego movie thing where it it talks on an adult level as well. But that said, who knows? I'll probably go and check it out because uh, it's always interesting to have a movie with both Daniel Radcliffe or Harry Potter and Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, together as leads. So I might go see it just out of interest because of that. Um, so I will maybe be seeing this on August 30th, 2019. But again, we're not really sure if that's when <laughs> it comes out. So check your local listings around then if you're interested. Although if you're not interested, uh, I don't think I can necessarily blame you. I wouldn't either. But who knows? I, I might stumble in the theater at some point and, and give it a shot. I was surprised by the Lego movies. The second one wasn't nearly as good, and, and the box office backed that opinion. But Lego Batman is still one of the best Batman movies to date. Yeah, so maybe don't judge it by its cover. But, Jacob, let's get out of the segment. And I'm actually going to do probably my first industry talk to tell you about At The Movies and Siskel and Ebert. I'll be looking forward to that, and we'll be right back with more podcasts. 
Okay, Jacob, have you ever heard a movie be reviewed or the merit that it was given thumbs up or thumbs down? Are you familiar with that? Very vaguely. And I think most of that familiarity comes from like a couple conversations we've had. So I am in your role usually right now, and I need you to tell me about this. Right. So this uh, that sort of rating system was pioneered by Gene Siskel, who was a film critic from the Chicago Tribune, and Roger Ebert, who was a film critic from the Chicago Sun-Times. Their newspapers were competitors, and they were actually kind of direct competitors to, like, being the big film critics at each of their respective newspapers. Their opinions sometimes differed, and so depending on which one you were more interested in, that sort of affected which newspaper you would pick up. But interestingly they ended up coming together for a lot of different tv shows starting with a show called sneak previews which was a bi-weekly pbs show where they aired film clips and like debated kind of the merits of the clip Hmm. Uh, if they were in disagreement it was usually voiced very loudly they could have (laughs) a lot of they tended to have a lot of fights on air and that actually kind of brought people back constantly in addition to that every week there was a dog of the week for some reason Uh, and occasionally rather than actually reviewing or talking about a movie an episode would be a special take two episode where they would discuss various tropes and themed like filmed topics which does that sound familiar i mean they were basically our precursors yeah i guess we are kin and we had no idea i had no idea yeah so the show started on a local PBS affiliate in Chicago in 1975, and it was actually originally called Opening Soon at a Theater Near You, but it was picked up for national airing on various PBS affiliates in 1977, and just two years after it went national, the show was shown weekly on over 180 different PBS affiliates, and to date, it's still the highest rated entertainment series in public broadcast history. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, and because of this success, the show was actually syndicated to commercial television. And again, I think one of the reasons that it became so popular was because a lot of their audi- or their arguments, um, there were a lot of spats, again, some of it because they were rivals at their respective newspapers, but also because their tastes in movies tended to differ, which caused them to agree often. Um, and In fact, in the early episodes of Sneak Previews, it often took full eight-hour days to film just one episode, and part of that was because of the arguments and breakdowns that the two would have. (laughs) Uh, So in 1999, Ebert said, We both thought of ourselves as full-service, one-stop film critics. We didn't really see why the other was quite necessary. No sooner had I expressed my verdict on a movie, my verdict, when here came Siskel with the arrogance to say that I'm wrong, or for that matter, the condescension to agree with me. In the television biz, they talk about chemistry. Not a thought was given to our chemistry. We just had it because of the day from the Chicago Tribune made Gene its film critic, we were professional enemies. We never had a single meaningful conversation before we started to work on our TV program. Alone together in the elevator, we would study the numbers changing above the door. Over time, though, the two learned to work together, and learning from that, they started to throw away the majority of their prepared points and just ad-libbed because they realized that when they did that... They didn't feel as hyper-connected to these prepared slides and points that they had. Mm -hmm. So the show was able to actually finish in an hour because they could... It felt like they were debating a little bit more, although the arguments were still there and they were still pretty intense at times. Uh, And in addition to learning to work together, the two actually became really good friends. If that's not 
Chicago, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you, you're something of an expert. Yeah, high volume arguments that somehow dissipate when you have less time to think about them. And then you become friends at the end. That is how I identify as Chicagoan. Right. Well, speaking of arguments, in 1982, Siskel and Ebert actually left Sneak Previews, citing contractual differences between themselves and the producing studio. The the show would actually continue to be produced until 1996 with several different hosts, but it was definitely never as popular as when Siskel and Ebert were on it. But that wasn't the end of their TV run. Soon after leaving Sneak Previews, they were recorded by WGN, who is a Chicago-based TV station, who signed them for a show called At the Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. This show was effectively sneak previews down to the dog of the week, which they brought back again. (laughs) But more importantly was how they rated films, thumbs up or thumbs down. Again, this is where it started to come in. The phrasing was actually trademarked in 1995 so that nobody else could use it as their own rating system and tarnish the credibility. So unfortunately, that can never be our rating system for anybody that was wondering. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because a lot of times they would actually qualify the thumbs up or thumbs down, something like, you know, two thumbs way up or a mild thumbs down. And when both critics gave a thumbs up, that was usually pretty interesting given that their taste differed and so if they were able to agree on something it must mean that the movie had a lot of merits in you know a number of different ways which is why again especially back in the old vhs days you'll remember for ads for movies it would say siskel and ebert say this movie gets two thumbs way up and it was actually a huge deal when they would say that about a movie they additionally added some segments to uh, at the movies such as an x-ray segment which was designed to look at trends in current movies so like for example if there was an x-ray segment now or three years ago they'd be talking about superhero movies and how they've started to come out and how this came to fruition and how it's continued on for the past decade or so so in 1986 there was another contract dispute and they signed with buena vista entertainment which was a disney tv division to create siskel and ebert at the movies and in mid-1987, the title was shortened to simply Siskel and Ebert. Uh, at the Movies was again continued after they left, like much of their or many of their other projects, uh, and expanded its scope to also include celebrity news, show business gossip, among other things, and it went through a bunch of hosts in its time as well. So the order of the names for Siskel and Ebert and the Movies, which just again became Siskel and Ebert, in case you're interested, was actually decided by a coin flip because they both felt like they should be first. <laughs> and so Siskel just happened to win the coin flip, and that's why his name is first in the in the title, or at least that's how the story goes. Well, that just flows better to me, too. Having just heard this for the first time, Ebert and Siskel just doesn't have that same, like, flair to it. I don't know. The coin, the coin made a good choice, I think. I think so, too. Um, and Although they had become good friends, like I said, the on-screen arguments continued, and some viewers cited this as their favorite part of Siskel and Ebert. It's what kept them coming back. So it can pretty clearly be said that throughout their entire career, their arguments have actually made them more popular. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So in October of 1995, which was around the 20th anniversary of Siskel and Ebert's working relationship, Richard Roper, who was a columnist and film critic that Ebert had worked with at the Sun-Times, wrote, Siskel and Ebert took serious film criticism and made it palatable to a mass audience, and, in doing so, became celebrities themselves, as recognizable as most of the movie stars whose films they review. Which is, again, 
huge praise and very true that Siskel and Ebert and at the movies and all of these shows had just become such a mainstay in pop culture that everybody knew who they were. And again, their reviews were top notch. That's what a lot of people looked for back in the day, like, you know, pre-Metacritic, pre-Rotten Tomatoes. This was how you knew a film was good. Well, that and if you look at today, there's no real Siskel and Ebert type duo because of these review aggregators. It's like the individual critics have almost lost their voice a little bit. This kind of stands out in history. Oh, absolutely. And so unfortunately, in 1998, Siskel was hospitalized due to a brain tumor, but he didn't want to be out of the show and still wanting to be a part of it. He actually recorded the show by calling into the program from his hospital bed and continued to review movies. Um, Later in that year, he was actually released and able to return to the studio, but unfortunately in 1999, he died due to complications uh, from a surgery on the tumor. The last show that they hosted together aired on the weekend of January 23rd and 24th, where they reviewed At First Sight, Another Day in Paradise, The High Low Country, Playing by Heart, and The Theory of Flight. The weekend after his death, Ebert devoted the entire program to Siskel, and following his passing, Ebert commented on their work together in friendship, saying that no one else could possibly understand how meaningless was the hate and how deep was the love. Getting me all teary-eyed. I know. Now, the show has to go on. And following Siskel's death, Ebert continued to do the show with various guest hosts through 1999 and 2000 before finally settling on Richard Roper, whom I mentioned earlier, his former colleague, to be his new co-host. The show continued on for uh, many years until in 2006, due to an emergency operation to help treat his thyroid cancer, Ebert began to have difficulty speaking and stopped appearing on the show. In his stead, there were a number of celebrity guest hosts. He continued to write reviews, some of which played on the show, and even though he couldn't speak to very well, um, there were a lot of celebrities that would come in and read his reviews and kind of do his reviews for him. In 2008, Roper announced that he was leaving the show, and on the same day, Ebert announced that Disney had chosen to take the show in a new direction and that he would no longer be associated with the show. Following this, the show had several different hosts until it was announced in March of 2010 that the show would be canceled. The last episode of that show aired the weekend of August 14th and 15th, reviewing Eat, Pray, Love, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and The Expendables. Now again, you think this is the end of the story, but it's not, <laughs> because in 2011, Ebert premiered a new show called Ebert Presents at the Movies, which ran until the end of the year. Unfortunately, at that point, at the end of the year, they're having some difficulties finding funding, and when Ebert died in 2013, no further announcements were made regarding the show. So again, this is like a storied career for a lot of these guys, or for these guys, and like collectively, they've been recognized as having brought movie reviews like to be very accessible to the public, something that was previously thought of as being almost like a little bit snooty and nose in the air kind of thing they made it easily accessible to the point where people tuned in every week to listen to them review movies and they felt like they were a part of it and again i think some of that accessibility came from the arguments because it seemed like just two guys at a bar almost talking about a movie and saying well no i don't think your opinion's right and going back and forth kind of the the metacritic effect that you had talked about before where it was almost you know what do normal people think of this movie because it felt like they were normal people but additionally, they were pulling in this expertise of being film critics. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of the accolades that they've won, they were nominated for six national and one local Emmy. Ebert is the only film critic to have ever won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. Uh, the pair were among the first broadcasters initiated into the National Association of Television Programming Executives Hall of Fame. They also received the National Association of Television 
excuse me, television programming executives Iris Award for their achievement in nationally syndicated television. And they were named Men of the Year in 1993 by the Hollywood Radio and Television Society. So again, these guys kind of helped to bring movie reviews to the forefront that they're at now. And who knows where reviews would be these days without these guys. Yeah, it's it's good to know your history when you're doing movie reviews and movies in general. They benefit from the critics because people want to make a good movie that gets reviewed well. So having this be available to the public, I think this could be the basis for something like Rotten Tomatoes, which has that categorization dichotomous of fresh or rotten, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, certified fresh, two thumbs way up. Uh, I, I can't help but think that that is in some way based on that similar system. So really cool to hear that story and the bond between two friends just reviewing movies and, and having fun very good story very well told oh yeah absolutely i mean even though they both had unfortunate health complications you can't help but like i said look back on what can be called nothing less than incredible and storied careers yeah of course and i would give them two thumbs way up <laughs> so would i and so with that we're gonna get out of the segment and then we're going to come back and we're going to do our own Siskel and Ebert impression <laughs> where we talk about Dora and the Lost City of Gold. So don't go anywhere. So here we are, Jacob, the moment that everyone's been waiting for. It is our feature presentation, which again, this week is Dora and the Lost City of Gold, directed by James Bobbin who directed the 2011 and 2014 Muppets movies. He co-created the Flight of the Concords TV show, and he also directed 2016's uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, the Alice in Wonderland sequel. Our leads were Isabel... I'm going to mess these up in advance, and I apologize in advance. Uh, the leads are Isabella Monaire for Dora, with Madeline Miranda being young Dora, Jeff Wahlberg as Diego, Michael Pena as Dora's father, Eva Longoria as Dora's mother, Benicio Del Toro as Swiper, Nicholas Combe, I want to say, as Randy, Madeline Madden as Sammy, Danny Trejo as Boots, and Houdinho Derbez as Alejandro. Pretty good cast, I do have to say. Yeah, surprisingly good, all things considered, for what is ostensibly just, you know, a kid's movie that you would otherwise probably think is unremarkable from the outset. Definitely, and I feel like that's probably where a lot of the budget went. Uh, the, it was $49 million for this movie, which is relatively small, especially when you consider a Disney movie like The Lion King, which had, again, like a quarter of a million a quarter of a billion dollars as its budget. Uh, right. I think you can see the differences in uh, studio earnings having a result on the budget. And I don't think the budget went to the effects. Let's just jump straight into the spoiler-free review part. Sure, I did not there. find the effects very good. Uh, I wanted Boots to be cute, but he was too animated, but not animated enough like he was in the show. And it just, it wasn't Uncanny yeah. Valley, but it felt it felt weird seeing him on screen a little bit. Yeah, for sure. The, the CGI was a little bit hit or miss for certain things. That said, the practical effects um, yeah. seemed pretty cool. I don't know if Monair did her own stunts but whoever did did a really good job of the the couple of stunts that were in the movie but yeah a lot of the cgi wasn't fantastic boots and swiper didn't look too great i mean 
if you're able to remove yourself from it a little bit, you know, I guess you can kind of accept it. And I think the bigger idea that they went with probably is, again, it's a kid's movie and that's not necessarily going to have to be on as big a display. Yeah, sure. But I, I'm i going to agree with you on that, that the the CGI visuals weren't fantastic. Yeah, they weren't fantastic and it wasn't trying to be something like the Lion King, where it was this impressive tech demo. It was trying to be a fun movie about a kid's TV show, and it leaned pretty heavily into that, but I think it did a good job of achieving that atmosphere of just this fun summer film for kids. I I would agree, and, and go beyond that to say, my theater was full of a bunch of different kinds of people. There were teenagers and then couples around my age you know in their mid-20s who probably like sort of grew up with Dora there were parents who were also around my age with their young kids so that's an interesting dichotomy of they probably grew up with Dora and their kids might have too mm-hmm. and then there were older parents with younger children and parts of the movie definitely hit for everybody and you know different moments different themes spoke to different subsets of people the intertwining of all of it into the movie was uh, interspersed kind of strangely it didn't always flow perfectly. Like there'd be one really silly bit for the kids and then move into something like uh, a more tonally serious stance on, you know, environmentalism or something, for example. And it it was a weird dichotomy at times. But again, if you go in with the mindset that it's primarily a children's movie, I don't think you'll be too disappointed. And you also have to bear in mind that this isn't, I don't feel like one of those children's movies that, again, has the ability to speak on two levels to children and to adults, like, say, the Lego movie, or ironically enough, I think Shrek, movies like that, that really are communicating on two different levels on, you know, or a, anything a story Pixar. basis. Yeah, right, exactly. Anything Pixar. The, the movies that, again, I I don't really have to explain this, but that are that can speak to kids about the plot and then to adults about a much deeper theme of humanity or the world. Yeah, it, it didn't quite try to hit that, and it didn't need to, but it was, uh, you know, all this being said, it was a pretty predictable movie. And again, that that's not a bad thing. It's for kids. Um, you know, there were, for the most part, I, I saw a lot of what was happening coming. Uh, you know, it, it was a safe movie. But when you're looking at Dora the Explorer, it was it doesn't need to be anything else. She's an iconic character, and they also had a good blend of... It kept the true nature of the show, I think, where it was this fun, exploring show, uh, elements of English and Spanish intertwined throughout. Uh, so it, it's trying to... It's like a mild cultural tapas in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean... Pretty much all of the characters that you would expect or want to be there are, for better or worse, again, speaking to the CGI a little bit, pretty much everybody makes a cameo. It contains a lot of the expected tropes, again, in in uh, you know these children's films where there's a lot of these kind of almost crude, silly jokes that the kids are going to laugh at that adults will kind of roll their eyes at, and the whole sort of kid being a hero adventure thing is going to be there i mean the, the i said this to you off cast that one of the movies that i compare it to the biggest from our childhood is spy kids mm-hmm. which i mean it feels like it still holds up but that's because we were kids when we saw it and we've got all these memories of about how cool it was then whereas if you were to watch it probably only as an adult 
now you would have a lot of the same complaints about it that we're having about this movie. So putting myself in that mindset, it's much easier for me to recognize how this is actually a very, very good kids movie. And it's not meant to be a good movie for adults. And that's really the perspective you have to take. We're not we're not going to directly compare this to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because they are vastly different movies. <laughs> but for what it was trying to do, I feel like it accomplished it very well. I mean, I agree with you that there are some twists and turns that were a little predictable. But again, I'm sure that some of the audience, especially the kids in the audience, didn't necessarily see them coming. Um, the climax, I feel like, left a little bit to be desired, which we'll get more into in the spoiler section. But again, overall, I felt like it did a really good job of knowing what it was, both based on just being a kid's movie and also being based on a specific kid's show. They leaned a little bit into some of the jokes from the show, but I didn't feel like heavily enough that it detracted from the movie. They hit on it one more time than I felt like they needed to right at the beginning, and then they sort of let it be itself. They let the movie be its own thing. Yeah, they did, and it was a movie I was pleasantly surprised by, because when I first saw the trailer, I was just appalled. And then as the trailer started releasing more, I was like, well, this still doesn't look good, but it doesn't look awful. And then I saw the reviews shortly before the movie released, and I was like, these are good reviews. I was genuinely surprised. I, I texted you and you said, yeah, that doesn't necessarily surprise me because it looks like it knows what it is. Uh, and yeah. and so to that end, I, I can appreciate this film. And again, especially more than I thought I would. Given those reviews, why don't, how, how did it do? Again, you're the, you're the statistics guy. You're the review guy. What, what did the numbers say? Like I said, they were pretty decent, especially for a film of this caliper. It got an 82% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. It got a 63 on Metacritic, and the raw average was a 6.46, so not too different from a 6.3. And it got an A on cinema score, so a lot of the kids and parents who watched it opening night tended to like it. And an A is, is a pretty good score. So it's on par with a lot of the other movies that we've seen and did a lot better than like something like Midsommar, which I believe got a D. So so what did you think about it specifically? I, I almost did the exact raw average. If you round up, I did a 6.5 out of 10 for this movie for reasons I'll discuss, but it was, it was pretty decent. I agree. I also did a 6.5. I could maybe go a little bit higher, and we might end up going a little bit higher. This is talking about this a little bit early, but every quarter we're going to go back and look at the scores that we put for each movie, talk about them a little bit, and see if we want to adjust any of those scores. So this may be one that actually ends up getting adjusted in the future, but I I, I think if it gets adjusted, it'll go higher because, yeah, I gave it a 6.5, but it really knew what it was. It was fun. It was a good kids movie. Again, it's not going to be one of those huge blockbustery action movies in the summer. But, you know, for a kid to want to go see this two or three times, I don't think that that seems out of the question. Again, there was just the, the end of the movie is really actually what pulled the score down a little bit for me, which we'll get more into in the spoiler section. But no, I I actually had a much, much better time in this than I expected to, especially if you go back a couple of episodes when we talked about this in our trailer section, 
we were both really kind of railing it. So I'm I'm kind of happily surprised to yeah. uh, see that we rated this as high as we did. Yeah, I I also toyed with a seven, but the ending. Well, let's just save that for about 10 seconds. If you haven't seen the movie, you can pause it now. Pause this podcast. We'll still be here waiting for you to return on your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever you're watching this on. Just pause that. Go watch the movie. Pay them their 10 bucks and then see what we thought so you can yell at us when we're done. All right, so now that we're in the spoiler section, Jacob, what I want to see what were your thoughts on the end that uh, caused you to pull the score down, because I already know mine. Oh, so jump into the ending, my favorite part. It got really weird, yeah. to say the least, with, with all the, you know, the, the gods and the Incan gods or whatever. I can't even describe it. I was, I was a little perplexed because it was a real shift from the rest of the movie. The mysticism kind of came out of nowhere which isn't a bad thing it was just confusing because again her parents were explorers or ostensibly you know like archaeologists historians and it felt like they could have touched on a lot of that a lot more than they did and then you know that one woman the guardian just transformed for some reason and became what is probably i'm not i'm still not clear if she was like like you said, some sort of god, or if there was magic that had been keeping her alive for hundreds of years, like it was never explained or anything. I mean, Paramount and Nick Studios kind of have a tendency to do that. Yeah, the only thing she said was the gods are angry when Swiper stole the statue. So it was kind of confusing. They were guardians, but she could magically transform her body. And I was just like, this didn't really need to get this this wild. Or if it did, it, it needed probably 20 more minutes of runtime to explain everything. I agree. I mean, I get that they needed a, a way to wrap everything up. And like I was getting at before, Nick and Paramount Films have a tendency to sort of just throw in convenient, you know, mysticism or magic or whatever right at the end to be like, okay, and it was all magic and you fixed it, you solved it the universe and the gods or the whatever are content now and everything's totally fine and when dora put the statue back everything like not only did it stop but like everything reverted like it kind of played in reverse and all the buildings were no longer destroyed and they were built back up which was kind of weird it was an interesting message though with relation to again they're explorers not treasure hunters and you know there's this classic uh saying mantra with hiking which is take only photos leave only footprints so it was kind of cool that they were weaving that idea in but yeah the end was just a little bit uh, wacky and very bang 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 here's a lot of things happening all at once climax the the climax like was i felt like i don't know 12 minutes from the end of the movie there was like no falling action of this movie at all it was like a lot of rising action something crazy happens it's fixed in three minutes and then the last four minutes were a song and dance number (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and i i just loved how the characters at the end weren't shocked by the discovery that the the gods are real and that it they i mean they saw an entire city transform before their eyes and then this gate magically vine itself closed and they're just like yeah typical you know post high school day but that being said i did like the theme and that running theme they had of we're explorers not treasure hunters this idea of 
enjoying the world for what it is, not really trying to profit off of it. And there was also messages of like sustainability, pro-environmental cues, which made it totally a little bit inconsistent, as you mentioned in the spoiler-free section, but is just a mm -hmm. good message to have in a kid's movie and a movie in general. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. Going back very slightly to what you said about, oh, just a typical after high school day. I wish that they, and this is an odd wish, but I wish that they had hit more on her feeling like an outsider at her new school. They touched on it very briefly for like 10 minutes at the beginning. But the way that this whole movie was pitched to me was her biggest adventure yet is high school. And it was really interesting watching her feel like an outsider for a while, which is something that I know a lot of people go through between middle school and high school. And again, the, the hardships that they showed were, that felt fairly real to me. I mean, at an elevated scale, because again, it's a movie and it's a Paramount film and X, Y, and Z. But a lot of those are hardships that people have either gone through or are going through. And then they just sort of ignored them. And they said, all right, yeah, high school's hard. But now also, you're just going on an adventure. Now you're going to be in South America. And, and that's what this movie is actually about. And I get that she ended up on an adventure with Sammy, who was, again, kind of a bully to her. But I, I would have been more interested in a story about her facing adversity from a large group of people and, like, in a more socially dynamic way rather than a singular bully in the middle of the woods or a group of mercenaries that have taken your parents. And I mean, I, I get that again, this is, that's not the nature of this movie that it's meant to be more of an adventure movie for like younger kids, but with the breadth of maybe not fans, but with the breadth of audience members that they had, I think it would have been interesting had they started to delve more deeply into that particular theme. But I also understand that they had to wrap it up in about an hour and a half. And they did sort of touch on it at the dance where she was doing the silly dances and a couple people made fun of her, but it, it wasn't at the level that it could have been. And the way they did market it was this huge high school adventure, which it wasn't. One of the other themes that I think was decently explored but not fully was being yourself regardless of who's watching this importance of being you and overcoming that adversity a true coming of age story and it it, it wasn't quite as coming of age as it was promoted to be yeah and i so i would have to agree with you there i still did like the the hints of that theme throughout uh, and, and i smiled at a couple points but for something where Dora is kind of an iconic character. So as you said, there was a lot of different age groups there. It could have affected people, that kind of message, at any any part of life. Kids going from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, to college, out of college. It's a, it's a pretty constant theme. So a little bit disappointed that, like you said, they didn't explore that as much as they could have. And I think part of that is the, the theme of being yourself. In an odd way, that whole theme kind of rode on Diego's character, I felt like. And unfortunately, he didn't feel like a super well-fleshed out character. Again, I get it. It's a kid's movie. Not always going to be that well-fleshed out. But he was the one that really felt like he was struggling to figure out who he was. Like he, he makes a joke at the beginning, like high school's hell. You know, we're all just trying to survive here. But by the end, again, he is doing this the silly dance with Dora at the end, like his cousin, and that's kind of who he really is. And you see it, little tiny pieces of it in the adventure when they're in the forest. And he's like, oh, 
well, don't eat that plant. And I know that because I've lived in the forest for all these years, or I know this is how this puzzle works because I've, my parents and my aunt and uncle have been studying it for years. And so him being himself does kind of shine through, but it felt like such a background to what was going on, which is again, unfortunate because for a film that is supposed to be for, again, all different age groups, but primarily for younger-ish kids, I think that is a really, really important message to try and send and to have it take a back seat and almost not be there is is just kind of unfortunate um, when it feels like this was sort of the perfect avenue to do it. And it's not a huge complaint, but I think you said it earlier. It was a very tropey film, so the high school portrayal was not necessarily realistic. It was kind of everyone was caricatures of what high schoolers are thought to be in cinema. I mean, as a kid's movie, it, it kind of makes everything more grand than it actually is or more extreme. For instance, let's go to the quicksand scene. And this is part of my own personal, like, kids' movie logic is terrible, but it's also for kids, so I have to give it a pass. Right. Um, the quicksand, I mean, that is actually the right advice. You, you you just want to lay on your back, and then you'll float up eventually. So that was kind of cool, real advice to give the kids. But then everything else about that scene was super unrealistic, and you, you know, almost never sink to the bottom. And I was really confused. So that quicksand pit didn't have a bottom to it, so why was the sand still there? He just like sunk through the bottom, but the sand, especially when you're moving, becomes more viscous. So it sort of, I was very confused how that sand was just floating above the air. I mean, again, like you said, it's it's at some point kids' movie logic, and yeah, I mean the character, uh, the quicksand typical scene. So it has to go into that trope of oh, we're gonna sink to the bottom, right? But yeah, so we mentioned those tropes are present and and you'll notice that at a couple of points with the high school and and everything else but something that wasn't common to a kids movie <laughs> was a drug trip scene <laughs> i mean it wasn't strictly speaking a drug trip scene but yeah i i i have written it the exact same way in our show notes i also said drug trip scene in a kids movie cuz yeah when the flowers spit out the uh i guess it was like a pollen or something that wasn't made super super clear but they didn't need to make it clear yeah that was bizarre i i think i leaned over to uh, my girlfriend and said something about i was like oh wow midsummer got i don't remember this part last time i saw it (laughs) um but i mean i it was really weird but they reined it in and i guess the perfect way for the movie which was to you know make everything animated because again dora's an animated character and this was a live action film and so you need that sort of iconic uh animation style i guess and then for all the you know goofiness that they that it allowed them to play with in the animation again kids were loving it in my theater so i think it worked out well if it was a really strange way to do it yeah it did allow them an avenue to pay homage to the original show and i thought that was a pretty hilarious element very unexpected but it was a very interesting theme or a scene or i don't even know what to call it for this movie but it 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 was cool and also spoke to how not kids movie this could be at times especially with all the talks of like legit murder and these kids fears of death Uh, and i think that's also part of the jumping where it was like oh here's a funny kids movie scene and then also we might all get murdered by mercenaries so it was sometimes not hard to follow, but a little jarring. Yeah, hard. Not not hard to follow, but 
or at least not hard to follow in terms of a plot, but hard to follow tonally because you couldn't figure out again who is this movie for sometimes. But again, that said, it it knew what it was despite all of that because at the beginning it kept making jokes like the show where young Dora was saying things like, oh, can you say delicioso? And that was one of the best... <laughs> One of the best lines is when Eva Longoria and Michael Pena look at each other and be like, who is who's she talking to? And they're like, I don't know, but it's fine. She'll grow out of it. And like, <laughs> you know, that joke, that joke got rehashed a couple of times. Um, they let it go after the first 10 minutes or so, which I appreciated. Another thing that they did actually in the beginning that I appreciated that I just now remembered that was kind of cool is that, you know, they're going on this Dora and Diego, young Dora and Diego are going on this like grand adventure and they're jumping from tree to tree and boots is there and you know they're being chased and x y and z and then it kind of whip pans around and they're in like a little fake cardboard car which is kind of an interesting way to me of signifying like oh yeah that show that you watch as a kid or that your kids are watching you know none of that's actually happening that's them in their imaginations and they're playing this game which is kind of cool to, to me a little bit it may be a little bit bizarre but it's like you know it's it's showing that the show is designed to tell kids, hey, use your imagination, have fun. You can have adventures no matter where you are, no matter who you are. Yeah, the beauty of creativity. The I, I loved the having young Dora in there. I didn't know she was going to be. And again, yeah, the either. first time that line was played with Can You Say Delicioso, very, very funny. I, I wish it was just that line, but they leaned off of it after 10 minutes, like you said. Um yeah. But everything about that Another... was really cool and allowed them to pay homage again to the original content. Yeah, something else that maybe didn't pay, that didn't do exactly that, but made me laugh because it was almost a meta joke. And it was definitely a joke for the adults, I thought, was there was a point at which Alejandro had them all captured. And he's, you know, leading them around and Dora is apologizing to her parents saying, I'm so sorry I came here. And they're like, no, we're so sorry we didn't bring you. And like going back and forth and it's like this big love fest and Alejandro says something to the effect of shut up I've been trapped in the forest with you for three days and I've had to listen to nothing but your insane positivity for so long just shut up which very clearly to me is like that's a joke for the parents because that's the parents who have had to watch Dora for six hours every day for like seven days straight with their kid because their kid wants to watch it and you know those themes and those lines aren't so grinding on a kid but when you're a parent and you're like just sitting watching it over and over this just insanely optimistic kid that just won't stop talking and talking about how great everything is and how the adventure is awesome and we did it that's definitely got to get grinding <laughs> so i just thought that that was hilarious that was the part where i just lost it in the theater i don't know if anybody else was laughing because i was laughing loud enough that like i couldn't hear anything else <laughs> that was one of a few just truly funny moments um I love that. I loved when they asked her where did she transfer from, and she's like, the jungle. It was just very, uh, there was quite a few good one-liners in there, some meta like that one, some just silly silly lines, but some jokes were a little too predictable. There was a lot of scatological humor in there, and that's probably, in my mind, the lowest form of comedy, but kids love it, so it's a kid's movie. You got to give it a pass. Right. Beyond really just the the use of poop jokes and fart jokes, I thought the humor was mostly well crafted. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, again, something I just want to touch on with a little bit more detail now that we're in the spoiler section is again the CGI swiper again was just kind of 
in terms of both the CGI and his character, it was just, he was a weird addition to the movie, right? Like, he didn't do anything. He didn't look that great. He didn't really do anything. Or, I mean, like, he sort of worked with the mercenaries, but also sort of not. He was almost a nothing character, which was a bummer since he was kind of a, I guess, a villain, in air quotes, in, in the kids' show. So it was almost disappointing to see him be portrayed the way that he was. That said... It did also allow for another one of my favorite lines where Sammy says something like, and why was that fox wearing a mask? Like, why does a fox need to to, to preserve his identity? Who's going to be like, oh, it's that fox. I know that fox. That was the exact fox that tried to kill me or whatever she yeah, said. Yeah, that was, that was a very funny line. Swiper, I agree. Swiper and Boots, I, I didn't care too much for. Swiper could talk to people, which made the scene Boots talked in a little bit less surprising. We'll get to that in just a second. But Swiper, Benicio Del Toro, his voice didn't fit the character. Swiper had a really high, higher-pitched voice. Aw, man. And he made the character his own, I guess, but it was it was a weird his own. It felt like the, not, not creepier, but slimier, almost, if that makes sense. Whereas, like... It does. the In the kids' show... He was he wasn't a good guy, obviously, but at the same time, it's you know a kid show villain where it's kind of oh you know goofy or whatever, and they're probably not like evil at heart. They're just not a great guy, sort of thing. Versus here, he felt like he felt almost like they were trying to make him a mobster or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was very confusing. So I, I wish you know he was in there, and they had the one scene that threw back to the show where they're like, hey, the swiper guy don't swipe it wasn't the swiper no swiping they found a clever way to just reference that without saying that so i thought that was kind of funny but yeah i i wish they had done it gone a different route with swiper yeah that said again what you were starting to get at in terms of boots the cgi wasn't great and boots was also kind of a do-nothing character for most of the movie which again was unfortunate or the fact that he didn't talk was also a little bit weird given that they allowed swiper to talk and not boots when boots was a much bigger part of the show and could very obviously talk i mean there's kind of a joke about it at the beginning where dora says to diego like no he can talk and diego's like no only you can hear him talk he can't talk and then of course he only talks to dora Mm -hmm. although he can communicate with everybody else so that said i I can forgive it because the payoff of hearing Danny Trejo's voice come out of a tiny (laughs) animated monkey, even if only for 30 seconds, talking to a teenage girl about how a lot of weird stuff's going on with her right now in her life, in her body. You know, it's going to be a lot of weird stuff, but just be yourself. Be honest. That payoff was 100% worth it to me, so I'm actually willing to forgive a lot of the (laughs) stuff with Boots simply because of that. It was entirely unexpected and... The kids were dying when Boots started talking because it's this very deep voice, very serious conversation that comes out of nowhere. And then as soon as everyone comes around the corner, Boots is like, ooh, ooh, ah, like back to being a monkey. So the payoff it was very well executed, that scene. No, I, I would 100% agree. I mean, again, the movie knew not only what the show was, but it knew what it itself was. And I think that is a very good indication of exactly that. It knew that it couldn't take itself too seriously. It had to be funny and it had to be funny for a lot of people because that exact scene, again, a lot of the adults who know who Danny Trejo is are obviously going to laugh because they're like, oh man, that's that's that guy. That's this, again, he's played Machete. He's played a bunch of like, he's been in the Expendables. Like I've seen this dude rip people apart 
And now he's, like I said, an animated monkey, and that's hilarious. And then there's kids who are like, the monkey's talking, and he's tiny, and he's got a deep voice. So that joke worked for everybody. And again, that is sort of the epitome to me of this film, knowing what it is and allowing itself to breathe and not take itself too seriously. But with that in mind, Jacob, is there anything else that you would like to say about this movie? Not really. I think we touched on everything. It was a relatively decent um just a good summer film for kids it had some stuff for adults and other age groups so your kids drag you to see it or you just go to see it yourself you'll be able to have a good time i think so i the score six and a half could be a seven um who knows but in general i i would say you won't be disappointed if you go to this movie and you you know what it is and because it knows what it is and it it takes advantage of that yeah i'd I'd say about the same like don't go in expecting a cinematic masterpiece by any means don't go in expecting it to be a mission impossible movie recognize that it's not winning any oscars right but with that in mind like like you said i don't think anybody will be disappointed especially if you know what it is and especially if you have any uh, idea about the background of this movie but that in mind, if you haven't seen it and you're here for whatever reason, go ahead and go see it. I think you'll enjoy yourself. Um, but with that all being said, Jacob, thank you for another great week. Uh, it's been a good time. I look forward to talking to you next week about our next film. Um, and if anybody wants to get in touch with you and tell you why the CGI was actually very anatomically correct on Boots and you <laughs> should give them a pass on that, where can they get in touch with you? If you want to contact me about that or maybe agree with me that's also nice you can reach me on twitter at pwg jacob pwg j-a-c-o-b i'd love to hear your thoughts you can tweet at me or dm me and i will get back to you i'd love to hear what you have to say and you can get at me on Twitter at PWG Grant. That is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you're interested in emailing both of us talking to the podcast, you can do that at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That is 35mmpod at gmail.com. If you have questions about the industry talk segment, if there's a movie that you want us to review, anything like that, please send it to that email. We're going to read all of it. Um, and every couple weeks or so, we're actually going to come back, revisit some of the topics from industry talk because... We're going to miss things. We're going to get things wrong. It's, you know, just fixing stuff up and any questions that you guys might have. Additionally, like I mentioned earlier, probably around the end of September and every quarter or so, we're going to have a a quarterly look back where we're going to talk about any scores that we might want to change. We're probably going to give out what we're going to call paper plate awards, which we'll get more into uh, at the quarterly look back. But I hope you guys tune in for that. Again, thank you so much for another great week, Jacob, and we'll see you all next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.